Machine learning and AI are just really going to be massive players, which, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't require a recruiter. What it means is we move at much faster paces in filling roles. That just creates this totally different marketplace than what we see today. Welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. I am your host, Mark Whitby. My special guest today is Christy Brown. Christy is a serial entrepreneur, investor, startup advisor, founder, futurist, and triathlete, and many other things. Prior to that, Christy was the executive vice president of a Fortune 100 human capital management software company, which she, she led the business transformation and client success organizations globally. Christy has scaled three service-based companies focused on digital marketing, human capital and security consulting, which she then exited. I'm super excited to talk today to Christy about how to build a company during a recession and hear the story of how she built, scaled and sold her staffing companies and tap into all her vast uh, well of knowledge. Christy, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Your bio is unreal. You're a very accomplished person. What the thing that surprised me most when I was researching your background is that you used to be a competitive triathlete and you've completed Ironman events. Um, could you explain what Ironman is all about for people who aren't familiar? Yeah, so Ironman is a endurance race. It is a um, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. Um, and that, you know, was my passion for, you know, about half of my life as a runner, uh, I evolved into through injury into competing in triathlon. And because I was always a, a distance endurance, uh, athlete, one thing led to the next and Ironman became my passion. Um, I haven't competed in about 10 years, but I still avidly bike run and have switched a little more of my interest into some passive things like yoga. Wow. Amazing. I was thinking about you I, as I was preparing for this podcast. I was I went out for a run with my son earlier today and I've never been like up until four months ago, I'd never run at all. And so I'm working my way up currently from five kil uh, kilometers to 10. So nothing like what you what you're used to doing. Um, I actually have two other clients who are recruitment business owners and triathletes. So shout out to AJ Anderson at Project 68 and Lee Charles at Kona Associates. They're going to be really interested to, to listen to this. What aspects of competing in, you know, those endurance events do you think transfers over to your success in, in business, Christy? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a profile and a persona I think about often. Uh, not just through my hiring of, of teams and, you know, the way that I do business, but it's a certain DNA, I think, as a founder. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear you have two other uh, competitive athletes in your, in your pool. Um, it is just this DNA of wanting to succeed and knowing that you can mentally go the distance. So there's, especially with Ironman or, or endurance sports or any sports, you know that there's an end result that you're trying to achieve, whatever that may be. It could be time. It could be a basket, you know, you're hitting in basketball. It could be, you know, a, a putt you're trying to make in golf. But there is this, you know, edge, I think, that athletes carry with them that help them go the distance, whatever that may be 
may mean to them. Interesting. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I mean, have there been, I mean, I mean I'm sure there are. Can you think of a situation when you're competing in that sort of event where you really are, um, you know, it's getting really tough and, you know, everything is screaming at you that you should quit or, you know, to, to, to give up. And, and so how, like, what's the mindset to get through that? Like, how do you push yourself through those kinds of points to be able to complete? You know, I'm not a, I hate to profile it this way, but I'm, I'm not a quitter. So I'm always looking for what is the finish line? It could be, you know, that's an interesting dichotomy when you think of, of people and personalities. Um, there are those that, that can and those that can't. My, uh, my swim coach used to tell me that. He stood on the sidelines as we competed. And I oftentimes thought, why aren't you in the pool, you know, swimming with us? And he, uh, he always said, those that, that can't teach, right? So um, arguably, I think those that teach actually have the ambition to, to be pretty competitive because they're defining the results. Um, so again, it goes back to what, what that distance means per individual or company, right? What your results and achievements look like and how you categorize that in your vision. I think you have to have a very accurate, even in competitive sports, an accurate vision of what you're getting to and then a virtual um, kind of symbiotic relationship in your own mind of how to achieve those, those things. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. So now, as you know, my audience are in the recruiting and staffing industry, uh, which I believe is where you got your start before going into software and, and uh, venture capital. Would you share the story of your career in staffing and how you, you know, found it scaled and exited your business? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very interesting bifurcated story. I um, had exited a digital media company that I built in 2003, 2004. And during that transition, a neighbor of mine owned a staffing firm and really just wanted some help with defining what business development looked like for them. So I spent about, you know, eight to 12 months with them. And during that period kind of redefined um, the hunting process and how to acquire clients and what that looked like. Um, you know, we all know the stats, the resume hasn't changed in a hundred years, the, you know, all these, all these things are in front of us. So it was really at that time and space defining what measurable services, um, felt different to their clients. I was very quickly recruited into a, uh, another firm and really loved the hiring aspect. It gave me this, you know, if we want to compare it, this Ironman high. It gave me such gratitude and excitement to identify and find people new roles and then put them in those roles and then hear from them five or 10 years later that, you know, that they had loved that first role and they wanted to work with me again. And so it became this passion. So I worked in um, a company which we had three acquisitions along the way and eventually exited that one um, and built the the second staffing firm that, um, that I was involved in. And it was by virtue of just, we had done so much with this global, um, brand that it was my turn to just go do it on my own. And so the mentality at that time, and this was in 2007, 
So we'll measure that up to the current financial, you know, impact right? Um, in just a moment. But that was really kind of the, the double-edged sword for me. I couldn't stay and work so, so hard another few years during this next merger. Um, so, you know, I had a very great conversation with the board and was allowed to, to leave and develop my own staffing firm. Okay. So, wow, this... Um so it was it was 2007 that you probably started your own thing and timing wise you could argue that was terrible timing to start a new business um so so what happened from there yeah so it was a very interesting time right i mean we we can compare it to some of the things that are happening in this current healthcare crisis today like there were massive, um, you know, fallout to the, to the economy occurring, uh, you know, a very uh, large banking crisis that we were still kind of coming out of the recessive economy from 2001 and, and the impact that 9-11 had on, on the United States. So uh, for me, it became a fight or flight. Um, uh, I was going to exit this company. I knew I was going to do that. And I knew I was going to build a brand. And luckily, I had clients that were very, very invested in what I did um, to build the next company. They wanted to stay with me. They liked the process. They loved that our ratios of, of open roles to submittals were two to one, um, that we had refined and, and kind of digitized in a way the way that we did business with them. And those client investments are really what built the company for me overall. It's, it was nothing special, you know, I would say that I was doing. It was the team. It was also um, the, you know, the mistakes I made along the way that made that, you know, influenced improvements in staffing. Can you say more on that? What, what mistakes did you make that led to innovation and improvement? Yeah, the first mistake I made was um, bringing partners into the business. And mm. so for the first few months, I actually had partners involved with me and made the decision about 90 days out, that was not going to work. Um, they were not as invested as I was in building the brand or the business. And mm -hmm. so I had to go through some legal turmoil with that, learned very abruptly what that felt like. Um, but it only made me stronger. And again, it influenced that path to the next, you know, five years of the business. Okay, interesting. So the bring the wrong partners on board uh, who had a different vision, you know, that obviously was a learning. What other learnings did you have along the way that you feel have made you a better entrepreneur? You know, I would say gratitude. Those candidates, when we talk about the the time between 2007 and 2010, every candidate that we hired for a client was so ambitious. They wanted to do not just one thing, but five things for the client that hired them. And they were so flexible and agile and humble in saying, I will go in in a contract role. I will come in in a contract role. And when you feel like I've performed uh, to the best of my ability, let's, let's talk about a full-time hire. So we had a lot of creativity in that time. So, you know, I think disruption is bred by creativity, right? So um, if we compare it to where we are now, we're going to see a lot of industries completely modify mm -hmm. just like we did between 2007 and 10. So I think it was just such this 
you know, humble influence that the candidates had and this gratitude for every client that we worked with uh, that was influential along the way. So you, you gave the example of candidates starting out in a contract role and then moving into full time as a way of allowing companies to take the risk of growing and hiring people. Um, was that just like an isolated example of your business being agile or was that an actual business model that you adopted or? It was a business model for us from day one, from day one. So for all your, you know, your staffing clients out there who participate in consulting hires, you know, that comes with a, with a great financial burden of meeting payrolls prior to being paid, you know, influencing your cash flow, looking at your bottom line constantly. And so we had, you know, by choice, we knew that the output of that was going to reduce our cash flow and that we had to be very sensible in the way that we hired, uh, you know, hired these folks to, to go into our clients uh, because full-time hires is, you know, are, are totally different. And that's a totally different person as well. So we created this marketplace, in my opinion, that, you know, really focused on these certain human capital areas in technology that brought along for us some some pretty significant, you know, fortune companies because we have this special expertise in consulting and we were willing to do it when others could not. And with very significant, you know, hiring ratios of, of two to one. And that was that felt good to them. We were efficient. We were agile. We were creative. Um, and then we had the full-time business, but it, it wasn't always the predominant piece of our business. Interesting. So, um, Christy, could you just clarify, like, what sectors were you active in? You mentioned technology. So, what sort of people were you placing in these consulting roles? Yeah, we only focused in financial technology, so fintech. And yeah. human capital management okay. in technology, right? So we weren't we weren't doing uh, HR uh, practitioners. We were doing HR technologists. Got it. Um, and then we also had, by virtue of that, a, um, a security practice where they were focused on systems integration through security. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So um, it sounds like creating an innovative. Um, product for your market and 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 a unique value proposition was important was one of the keys to your success um, early on because as a startup how do you compete against the big established players right you need something you need an edge you mentioned that one thing was relationships with clients that kind of got you know got you started and and stayed loyal to you and the other aspect was being creative and being um, having an innovative approach um, was there anything else that you guys did differently that, you, you know, helped you to win a uh, new business? You know what? I shared this recently with a mentee that I have, and we were there for them always. And we're going to experience a lot of this, you know, in today's world as we continue to scale back up the economy. We, I was talking to hiring managers, executives, leaders, and organizations all the time, whether they were hiring for me or not. Um, it just was part of the DNA. And my husband likes to tell the story that, you know, I met him on the golf course because he was a potential 
client who never bought anything for me, but I took him <laughs> golfing, right? He was an investment I was making. And I think that being there, understanding and their, their critical pain, understanding their business pain, understanding, you know, again, between 2007 and, and 10, and then I exited the company in 2012, but in those times that they didn't have budgets to hire, they had critical work that needed to be done. There were only so many hours in their work week. And, you know, what did creativity look like for them uh, in abundance and, and just staying in touch with them? And I think that was, you know, it sounds like a soft, kind of a soft ball approach, but it, it really was. It was, you know, staying in, in line with what their expectations were because everything changes eventually, right? Everything goes up. And we know those inflection points are coming and they will hire again and things are, they're going to think of you first because you made them their priority during a, a crisis. Thank you for sharing that story. It's funny, you're now the third person who I know that met their future spouse um, as a like a client visit kind of uh, scenario. And it just makes you think like, imagine if you'd never made that call or made, set up that meeting, right? Your whole life would be, would be different. And I, when people are scared of picking up the phone or reaching out to a potential client, um, I mean, of course we, we all feel like that, but I always think just what opportunities could be the end of this conversation or relationships or like people that, you know, whether you get the business or not, if you put that energy and that action out there in a positive way, then you're going to get something out of it. And um, it sounds like in your case, it was a it was a husband. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so you invested in those relationships, even if there was no short term gain. Right. Because you can you explain your your philosophy around that? Yeah, look, we're all people. We're all human. Um, this is a human staffing is a human centric business, whether yeah. it be employee side or the employer side and investing that time and energy around how do I make your life better? If not now, when, right? That's the bigger statement. If not now, when you'll think of me and we'll come back to this, how can, you know, you, you're really using, I adapt this from my friend, Kat Cole, who you guys can can look up, but she speaks avidly on the hustle muscle. And that hustle muscle was getting in front of clients, differentiating ourselves. We knew we weren't everything. We were not the ultimate staffing business. We knew our pillars. We knew our strengths. We knew what we could and could not recruit on. And those were imperatives that we had to stick to. We, we had to, because again, if you think back to my earlier story of joining that neighbor to help her build her business development area and staffing, you know, they, they were all things to all people, but it was really getting to that linear focus of what are we invested in, in technology? Are we, you know, are we QA testers? Are we cybersecurity analysts? Um, getting to that specialty really set up, set us apart in a lot of ways. And um, we were called to do things that, that others were not. And it created an agility and an, an adaption within uh, my company that, you know, carried through, which was favorable. Awesome. This is great stuff. I'm, I'm, so the specialization, I agree a hundred percent and I'm always, uh, 
pushing my clients to become, you know, the specialist expert exactly in their in their niche. Um, so specialization, differentiation, um, and investing in relationships. Were there any other kind of keys that you think were critical for your success? Yeah, and the talent. You know, I had a rigor around talent. Um, we had a previous conversation, Mark, that you uh, moderated where we talked about hiring remotely and really setting apart the confidence to do that. We were doing that then. We were asking clients, look, to ensure the success, we want to set up an opportunity that you meet this client, you know, by phone or video to the best of our ability. And uh, rather than having them on site and we want to make this efficient for you. And if it's, you know, if it's, I live in the U S obviously. So, you know, if it's an Atlanta hire, great, they can probably meet you where you are. If it's a New York hire, then we're probably going to do some remote um, conversations and, and getting them accustomed to trusting us, but doing the front end work, right? So vetting them, understanding that they could, you know, pass the technology test and human capital or, understanding they're already having the references prepared, be doing enough on the front end that we made people's lives better, uh, both for the hiring manager, but for the employee, that we were investing just enough to ensure that the employee felt secure about the type of role that we were referring them to also. Mm -hmm. And then investing in the employees. You know, we had um, monthly meetings that we invited um, all the consultants to and all the full-time hires that we had made because those are ultimately your referral sources. If they are happy in their roles, they are always going to lean into you to help them again. And so it was, you know, really making them part of my team um, and having those conversations with them and being on site, you know, visiting these clients. Uh, it's a little bit different right now because we are mostly in stay at home with, uh, you know, with some challenges around that. But hosting these video calls and having conversations with your staff and your teams is bar none the best way to execute. And it's connection, whether it's a virtual cocktail hour or, you know, having conversations around, a, you know, a podcast or video like what we're doing, it, it really connects people. And that's ultimately the human character I think we all strive to commit to. Okay. Every answer you give, there's five different directions we could go here, but um, no, that's good. Keep, keep going. I, I like what you're, what you're sharing. Um, I, my ears perked up when you said something that is very unusual. These monthly meetings with all your place candidates, what what was that all about? Like, what did you actually do with them? Yeah, so we would create an agenda every month um, that would really outline who's new to the team, uh, whether it's one, two, 10, 20 people, uh, what their skill set was, announce them in the call, what client they were working for, if it was a consultant or where they had been placed, if it was a full-time. And then we would talk about the company. So, you know, we grew by four headcount this month. Here's your team on the ground. Uh, my head of recruiting is going to outline uh, what her role is and what she's looking for. So you guys are all aware and can send your referrals. Here's our referral program. Here's the way that we incent you to be part of this family. 
here's how we're committed to you. And then a couple of times a year, we would actually do offsite events as well, just to add to that, where we would try to connect people. I mean, sometimes it would be 10 people, sometimes it would be 30. So it just depended on, you know, how they wanted to be part of culture. And I think culture is a key for that. Um, defining your culture ahead of schedule. And I would tell you as a, you know, as an early business founder, I, I didn't know what culture was. I, I still aspire to create this great culture uh, in every team I, I create, but you know, there's no perfection. There's just influence, right? So you can put your uh, kind of cherry on the top of the ice cream, but what really is going to influence your employees to be part of you? And so that's why we did the monthly calls and some of the activities to engage them was just make them to feel part of something. Because think about the consulting role, which was, you know, 80% of our business. We put them out on site at a client. And if you're visiting them, they feel very connected to you. But if they don't have time for a visit or time for lunch or time to kind of be part of, you want to create a community of connection for them. And now we have such great tools for this with collaborative platforms like Slack. I mean, if I, if it was my staffing company today, I would absolutely have a Slack board for all of my people to be attached to and communicate to um, with channels of, you know, referrals or job openings or things like that. It's just such a fantastic tool uh, for communication. But at that, you know, 10 years ago, we had conference calls and video calls. So that was the extent of, of what we could participate in. That is so cool. I am not aware of any other recruiting firms doing that. And that's a brilliant idea. Um, I like Slack, by the way. I use that as the kind of community for my coaching group. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really good as well. The recruitment industry is going through a time of unprecedented challenge, and all of us have been affected to a greater or lesser extent. From what I can see from my vantage point, speaking to hundreds of recruitment business owners around the world, for the vast majority of recruiters, this is a very painful time. What about you? Do you have a plan for the next 30, 60, and 90 days? All of my clients have a plan to navigate this crisis because I've helped them to create one. I've survived multiple economic cycles, including the dot-com bubble, the crash after 9-11, the Great Recession of 0809. And listen, I know this is different to anything we've seen before, but based on my past experience, I'm confident that I'm getting through this in decent shape and I'm determined to bring my clients with me. So if you're ready to be proactive instead of reactive and you're open to getting some guidance and support, then you're invited to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. I will be focused on helping you to get clarity on your situation and create a plan for moving forward. By the way, I don't have all the answers and I'm not promising miracles. I can promise you'll leave the call feeling focused and re-energized with a solid plan for moving forward with or without my help. Once again, it's www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So you also mentioned something or you referred to um, an event that we both participated in, which was run by Jordan at, at PCN. Jordan's coming on the show as well, by the way. Um, and uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. So the event was how to hire remotely with confidence. And it sounds like you were doing that even before it was, you know, absolutely necessary, which it is now, how did you persuade clients to 
do that as opposed to, you know, if they have in their mind or they've got a, a, a more traditional process that requires Candace to come in and actually meet in person, how did you, how did you sort of get them to trust enough that it doesn't have to be that way? A couple of different things. Um, someone asked me this recently and we were doing hiring at a distance before it was in vogue. Um, and I would tell you, even today, I hear startups and things, uh, you know, I, I see open positions and they're saying, I won't hire until I meet them, you know, until I meet them live, which I think is really short-sighted. Um, you know, like I said, we were doing it before it was in vogue, but a lot of our clients, because they were in the Fortune space, the Fortune 500, Fortune 100, needed volume. So we had something very interesting happen between 2000 and 2010, and that was the uh, ACA (laughs) was implemented for healthcare here in the U.S. And a lot of my human capital clients needed um, folks that could arbitrate their client conversations. And overnight, we went from like hiring, uh, you know, three or four people a month to 60 Wow. Um, and so we had to create an efficiency. We were forced, not, not that I didn't have the vision or roadmap around this, but we were forced into adoption. Meaning if you are called on a Friday and you need 60 people that can be on site and speak to uh, technologies around ACA with a book that was still being created in Congress of thousands of pages <laughs> that we had to very quickly react And that gave us uh, the agility with our clients to say, here's how I need to run this. I need to do this as a project. I need the commitment that these folks are going to be in place six to 12 months. I need the commitment that they are your first line of sight. So I need to know what their training is. What are you going to give them when they arrive? We, we can do all the soft things. We can provide lunch once a week. We can come check on them and make sure they're doing well. We can make sure they have the tools that they need. But I have to do all the hiring here, meaning you're not going to meet them. We're going to go at this blindly um, if you do, because that will slow us down. And there's no way in two days you can fulfill 60 people teams um, without first the depth of recruiting, but secondly, um, without a commitment from your client that you need to move in an efficient way in a technical way. So I think technology enablement in recruiting is probably the number one growth area that I look at, even from an investment lens. It is one of those things that has to grow. It has to accelerate and we have to influence it. Meaning, you know, we have to communicate to our hiring managers that there are, are alternative ways to make sure that you're getting the number one client for your number one role. I mean, I'm sorry, the number one candidate for your number one role. And technology enablement only allows that. So again, if you think back to 10 years ago when I said we were doing all these things on the front end before we ever submitted, technology enablement and AI tools through recruiting now influence all of that. So I know if someone's done a background check drug screen, performed three years at a certain client, I've, I already know all of that because I've got all the data. So that should speed up the hiring process and really influence your hiring managers to take a, a, a next step around trust. And it is a trusted partnership. It's, it's very much developing that partnership between you and your hiring manager that influences them to take the leap and 
not ignore the fact they can do this at a distance. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I uh, we speak the same language, Christy. Yeah, definitely. We speak the same language. I um, teach a model that's uh, called Impact, and that stands for inbound leads, marketing automation. The P is partnership, where you have you're working collaboratively with the client instead of which is too often the case where it's adversarial, kind of between the recruiter and the and the client. Uh, a is authority, so being that expert in your niche area specialism, C is consistent content, and T is building the right team around you. I'd like to talk about technology and enablement, but first, can I go back to something? Because I want to make sure I understood this correctly. With this situation where you were, you know, placing 60 people as a week or, or was it a week or a month? It was a week. 60 people a week. Wow. Did I hear correctly that the client didn't even interview. You selected the candidates that were you were going to place in the job. Correct. Okay. Wow. I gave them a profile, right? Mm-hmm. We knew the profile. We had met enough uh, in calls and, and meetings. Uh, yep. We knew the profile of what was required. And, yep. um, you know, it was a 24 by 7 operation for several days to, to kind of build a pipeline of, of those folks. But, yeah, mm-hmm. we had to do everything uh, on the, in the interest of the, of the client. So they had to hire sight unseen. Wow. That's awesome. And, and what was the, the sort of success rate of that in terms of how many, you know, what percentage would stick? So our turnover was very minimal. Our, our turnover was very minimal. And I think a lot of that is because of the soft reach that we had. We had someone on site that acted as the project manager, that would meet with them where they, again, meet, meet with your consultants where they are, be where they are. And we managed that, you know, several days a week, we were meeting to make sure they were okay, meeting with the hiring managers to make sure we understood any challenges they had, influencing everything from dress code to lunch hours to, to what have you that we were, we were there to support that uh, architecture because it was a volume. It was, it was a lot of volume. Yeah. Um, but those were some of the attributes that I think made us successful and made the client really trust that this was, uh, something that only we could manage. I love it. We used to teach like way back in the olden days, um, a, uh, a, a cl- like in terms of client commitment, if you're placing consultants or, or contractors, it was a working interview. So if the client insisted, like said, oh, well, you know, they need to come and see me, then we would say, well, <clears throat> best way to evaluate someone's performance is to see them doing the job, not to meet them for an hour where you're not really getting, you know, a true picture of how well the person will perform now. And we've placed this guy before he's had got excellent references. Why don't we just, you know, because of the urgency, why don't we just start him in the role? And after the first week, if he's not working out, then, um, you know, you can let us know and you won't pay any, you know, of our margin, you know, we'll uh, we'll do it at cost, something like that. And uh, sounds like you took that to uh, another another level. That, that's that's amazing, um, Christy. When you talk about technology enablement, can you s- explain a little more about that? Yeah. So I think you know, look, I think there's a lot of tools out there, uh, job boards and things like that that have been around. To me, those feel very ancient now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think most recruiters look at LinkedIn recruiting and things like that. I, I just really see a wave of change where this can be, you know, technology enablement can both 
provide the data around candidates to the clients and probably reduce the timeline it takes to hire. And by that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of AI tools that can go one-to-one. For example, a hiring manager needs something if they use an AI tool, um, you know, the recruiter moves through that faster at a just much faster clip than digging, 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 which I think, um, you know, if, if we think about the natural recruiter spending eight hours a day really sifting through resumes, technology enablement, I think, is going to make that rigor at a just, it's going to be at a much faster, rapid pace, meaning the recruiter can now deduce those, you know, 25 resumes they're seeing eight hours a day, you know, they can probably look at 80 uh, because the AI can actually run the, you know, the algorithm created to identify the talent at a much different rate and then compare it, right? So depending on the tools, they can compare the skill set across the job boards in LinkedIn to see if anything's changed. Um, So I I think about the application of that really with internal systems where you see 50, 80,000 candidates in a database uh, for a large corporation or more, um, where they can actually utilize a tool to disseminate the information faster for the recruiting teams, which of course creates efficiency, but also it really creates success for for them and the hiring manager and the candidate. And Christy, to what extent is that something you're seeing being used successfully now as opposed to something you think is kind of going to become more and more common? Yeah. Yeah. From I'll put on my venture capital lens. Most of what I've looked at over the past year has had somewhat of a human capital influence to it. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's not in market at a vaster voluminous rate today. Um, I see a lot of technology companies adapting things like this. Um, and so if I think from a futurist standpoint, I mean, I think we're less than three years away really modifying this behavior and processes within, um, within the recruiting culture. That's interesting. So le- let me talk to the futurist then. Um, what do you see as the future of the recruiting industry as, you know, as it becomes more and more influenced by technology? Um, let me be careful in the way I answer that. I think technology enablement is going to drive um, some differentiators in the market. I think we really started with these ideas 10 or 12 years ago, but we've seen slow execution. For example, I think, you know, I see, we we talked about it earlier in this conversation, the resume really hasn't changed, just hasn't changed. It's evolved to, you can find me on a job board, you can find me on LinkedIn, but there's still no way that you're interacting or or creating efficiency in the employment base. So I think, um, you know, machine learning and AI are just really going to be massive players uh, rather than, you know, the key resources that we've seen which, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't require a recruiter. What it means is we move at much faster paces in filling roles. So the volume I spoke about, you know, 10 years ago that I had to, we had to hire 60 a week, that that becomes, I can do that in a day, right? Because my, my technology is telling me that I have all of these resources available. They've checked all the boxes. Here's your set of your team. And that just you know, creates 
this totally different marketplace than what we see today. Mm, interesting. So um, on that note, then, what are the skills, competencies, or or attitudes that recruiters will have to have in order to still be relevant, you know, five, 10 years from now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that's the second part of the question that I get mo- asked most often. It's not that the recruiter is irrelevant. It's that they've got to be able to use technology at their at their fingertip. Um, if they are not, or they're not thinking about platform-based technologies to support their function, um, they might be behind the eight ball or they're not going to grow. So it doesn't mean that you still won't be called by your client, but if your client discovers, you know, or, or because of the relationship, it just means that in a voluminous world, in a larger, you know, corporation, they need to move at a faster clip. And of course, they're going to look at bottom line expenses, which is large in recruiting, right? So if they can get, you know, if they can cut cost by doing things in a more efficient, faster technological way, they're going to do that. And so from a recruiter perspective, you know, I'm at my heart, that's exactly what I love the most. It's the candidate connection, it's placing them, it's feeling good about what I'm doing every day. But now, you know, it's not just that one-to-one connection. I might have 10 or 20 to one connections of of people that we're doing that for. Um, It doesn't completely remove that aspect of human contact. It's just speeding it up. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Thank you, Christy. I want to hear the rest of the story of your uh, the business you founded and exiting from that. So we kind of went off on a on a tangent, which was really good. But can I circle back? So you had um, built a great team. You had you were focused on eighty um, percent consultants, twenty percent permanent roles um, in fintech, specifically human capital management uh, technology and uh, and security, and you um, you were placing like these high volumes of people. How, what was the next step then in terms of like actually scaling the business? Yeah, um, <clears throat> we had been approached several times on scaling, and knew that the next scale was either going to require venture investment or mm-hmm. a partnership or things you know that that matched point where we were. So it could fall on the left or the right of that, right? So um, my option was to scale and partner with a company that that didn't have the consultant resources, but did have um, the connection that uh, we did in the same velocity. I would say our sales velocity was very similar. And so partnering with that organization um, and bringing in my company made sense. It just made logistic sense. Um, there were several other um, deals that we had on the table that didn't make as much sense. And, you know, in business, you you really want to look at, you know, first off, I would say when you sell a business that I would start here as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as, you know, as an investor, I would say it's never fun. It's never comfortable. You regret doing it. And so I oftentimes regret even moving forward. But we knew that, again, to stay in that in that trajectory, to move to that next inflection point, we had to have capital reserves in a different way. Um, so that's why we opted to, to sell uh, the business. But it didn't mean that, you know, I could not have continued 10 more years and built something, again, like the previous company that scaled and scaled fast and went through, you know, multiple M&As. It, um, it just became this kind of 
denaturalized, you know, fit of this makes sense for us. Um, but, you know, again, founder hat on, it's, it's never the best thing, you know, longer term. You wish you, wish you wouldn't have or you wish you would have, right? So. Can you say more about that? That's an unexpected um, perspective. Because you, you kind of think, sorry to interrupt, Christy, I was just going to say a lot of people when they start a business, that is the dream is I'm going to sell it. I'm going to make my millions. And um, but you're talking about it from kind of a different perspective. So where's the gr- regret or, or, you know, how does that fit in? Yeah, I, I regretted that we didn't scale um, a little bit longer, that we didn't go, you know, three more years, for example. Um, and then really identified other areas of opportunity, other vertices that would have been a great fit for us. So, you know, yes, we had, you know, uh, FinTech. Yes, we had human capital management. Yes, we had cybersecurity. Where else could we have planted ourselves that would have scaled differently? Um, because I, I would have liked to have seen that through in a different manner. Um, I think the regret aspect is always it's never yours when you sell it. It's never yours again. And so there's two ways to think about yourself as a founder. And I often coach on this. It's a lifestyle business or it's a business you're, you're scaling and you have to make that decision. If it's lifestyle, I could have just gone, you know, on and not grown and stayed flat and been probably happy. Um, But when you want to scale and that's where the athlete mind comes in, I would argue when you want to scale and you are, so set on the mission and vision of where you're going, um, that's a totally different opportunity. And so that's not for everybody. I mean, you're, you're right, Mark, by saying it's everyone's dream to start a business. It is, but they have to define, is it a lifestyle or is it mm-hmm. something I just want to, you know, am I the next Google? And so mm-hmm. those are the things you really have to contemplate in starting a business, especially, you know, right now, right? So there's so many companies that are going to scale and scale fast because this, this just entitles disruption and creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, founders and, and very smart people are going to adopt to that and say, we're okay to pivot. We're okay that this is, you know, not what it was. We're okay to move to the next layer of what our business should look like. Interesting. So the regret is partly just that you no longer own something that you created, right? That was your, your baby. And then was there an element then, am I picking up that you felt you maybe sold too soon? You might've wanted to see how, how much further you could take it or? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, you just touched on a subject that I think is really um, hard for people to think about anything at apart from this, which is, where is the opportunity right now? Like people are saying, okay, Christy, Mark, I get that I need to invest in the relationships now. And so that when the curve, you know, swings back up, then, you know, I'm able to capture that business, but I need to keep the lights on. I need to pay the mortgage now. So, you know, what are the opportunities to take advantage of in this type of economy? Yeah. So these are very difficult questions for a founder and business owner or operator. It is, you know, you've got to keep your cash flow. We're not thinking about what's going to get us the next 30 days. I'm trying to influence founders. What's going to get you into 2021? Forget about right now. What difficult decisions and meaningful decisions are you going to have to make right now that continue your business? 
because, you know, those are very big challenges. And when we're talking about employee engagement and culture and all those things, there's none of that without the business. And so this is one of those very uh, challenging times that you have to architect what that looks like for your company. And especially in hiring, we are going to see, you know, people not want to hire on video, which again, we laugh about, but it's, it is, you know, it's hard here, especially in Georgia where I live, right? There's, there's an old mentality an old state of mind that we have to meet everyone. And, you know, unfortunately, I just don't agree with that. And so it's really, you know, for these founders right now, it's a tough time. But like I said, pivoting, understanding what's going to get you not just one month ahead. We're talking a year ahead. What difficult decisions are you going to have to communicate, whether it's taking a step back and, and letting your staff know that you can only do 20 hours a week instead of 40. Um, you know, but you, you are committed to the growth of this company and you really want them on board and you'd be surprised at the adoption that occurs in a state like this. So it sounds like part of your advice to the founders that you're, um, mentoring is protect your cash flow to make sure you're still around in 2021 where, you know, we can start seeing, you know, the, the, the profits and the growth increasing again. Okay, and that will require some tough decisions, obviously. Um, are there any other things that, apart from preserving cash flow, that you're advising your your mentees? Yeah, I am absolutely telling them to meet with their financial relationships. Let them know your status. And, you know, they we have in the U.S. architected some programs to help sustain some of these businesses. Mm-hmm. And many of them have uh, adopted the programs like PPP, which is the payroll protection program. Um, they've also influenced their, um, you know, their teams that they've had to furlough or lay off to apply for the CARES Act, which is really um, the unemployment insurance security that was passed. And there's, you know, there's a lot of programs that founders need to know about right now. Um, and it is going to be a critical decision whether you keep your teams or not. And our clients are also going through that, but that's an opportunity, especially in staffing and recruiting to approach your clients and inquire, you know, you still need the role. You still need the work done. Is this, is this an opportunity for that person to be a consultant for 30, 60 days? You know, what can we do to continue to keep these folks employed and engaged and then take advantage of the other programs like PPP that may give them a, a longer runway. Interesting. That's a cool idea. Do you, so do you mean hiring people as a consultant or to persuading your clients to hire people? Do you mean the candidates that maybe they've put things on hold and said, okay, we're not hiring after all you're saying, well, let's just look at a different structure. You know, what would enable, yeah, absolutely be creative about how we, enable them to still get the work done at their companies that they need these people for, um, but in a, in a different way. Absolutely. And I think, again, that, that creativity is going to benefit your clients, benefit your, your uh, candidates and benefit yourself because you're offering a solution to an already ignited problem, right? So the work may not go away, especially in certain, so I would use FinTech as a great example these, uh, you know, transaction process technologists are not a dime a dozen. 
and we cannot find them fast enough in technology. So those are very interesting skill sets that, you know, you can present in, in FinTech and you just know that market is super hot. So how do we continue to hire to those advantages and get creative about the solution? Because, you know, the, the formidable bank is saying, well, we, we've got everything on hold, but this has to be done because we're trying to process 90,000 applications for PPP every day and our technology systems are, you know, dated and how do we do this? You know, there's a lot of technology adoption that will be pursued from that perspective. So it's, it's getting creative about getting those folks in and, you know, like the volume example I gave, you know, let me do the hiring. Let me create the project around it. Let's, you know, get some term, some T's and C's in place so that you're comfortable. I'm comfortable. Um, first off payment terms, right? But the, the second is, you know, let me do the hiring and make this easier for you because we know there's still a problem. Mm, interesting. I love it. So I've got two more quick questions for you, Christy. Um, one is I read that you, you wrote somewhere that um, a, your experience of being the only female technologist in a room. Could you say a little more about that like as a as a role model let's say for women in leadership especially in technology how do you um how do, what do you bring to that how do you how do you thrive in that environment where you are maybe the only one or or one of or in a minority let's just say yeah it's a great question it's it's not that i thrive on being the only one it's just something i've noticed whether it's in venture capital in boardrooms and technology, I've typically been one of very minimal few females at the table, let alone, you know, one of my passion plays is not just being a female-led company, but also being in that underserved markets. So we, th- we take women of color and, and, uh, and, and that just decreases even further. So it's, you know, how do I feel about that? You know, we can do better would be the first comment I would make. And then you know, if, if these folks are not at the table, you know, females leading corporations and companies at the table, we, we really lack a um, kind of a, another thought, right? Because we all have different thoughts and processes and, you know, having folks in the boardroom and reacting to that should not be, um, unfortunately, it's happened to me. So I'm just going to use this example, not to be funny, but to be candid where I've walked into a boardroom and someone's asked me to get their coffee. Oh no, you're joking. Yeah. And I just giggle and hand them the coffee and sit down. And then I take control of the board meeting. It's just (laughs) uh, not control. I mean, I add, you know, I take control because I'm usually leading it. So um, it is, it is kind of a, a shocker when you're the only one, but it also is this great opportunity to maybe change thoughts and maybe be a trailblazer in some kind of way. Um, you know, it's, it's this generation coming behind me that I really want to see massive impact because we've created these opportunities and those behind, you know, in front of me have created such vast opportunities. And in a hundred years, we've gone from, you know, females in the U S not being able to vote to, you know, being able to vote. So, you know, that's a pretty big stride. Um, and, you know, laugh at it if we do, it's not how we see, you know, the West, the rest of the Western culture behaves. So, um, so being the first just means you get the opportunity to change things. And I think that that's, you know, a huge compliment to, to the strides that we make. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So you see it almost as a responsibility that women need to uh, rather than shy away from it to embrace it because it's going to make a difference for their kids and their grandkids. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. You- and I and I'm Go a ahead. big believer in you know empowering women. I'm an advisor for a company called Tone Networks that is just this amazing enablement platform for women uh, that really stands up the micro learning, whether it's professional presence or way to communicate in the boardroom to even just taking right now, uh, you know, how to take a break, how to take a five minute break and really kind of diminish and think about how to reduce your stress. You know, we've got kids at home, um, you know, with a large percentage of of females taking the role of now teacher and, and, um, you know, business operator. And that's hard on us. And that does create this mental drain. And so I've, I've found opportunities and silver linings and things of community where you don't have to be the first, you just want to, you just want to be together. Right. So you just want other people to know that homeschooling is not easy and that teachers are saints in and of themselves. Right, so, yeah, no kidding. So that is a, an important lesson for all of us. I'm okay. great as a CEO, but I, I don't have the special talent to teach. <laughs> Me neither. That makes two of us. Christy, um, what sort of so people listening who maybe want to follow up with you, um, like what's the sort of person in your either in your your mentorship or your venture capital business that like what sort of profile person can you realistically help? Oh, that's so vast, Mark. I was not ready for that. Well, I the reason I ask is um, I want to sort of pre-qualify people a little bit so that you don't get lots of inquiries that you really just can't do anything with. So got it. I first would would spell out thank you. I mean, anyone that wants to reach out and have a follow-up, I, I don't diminish people no matter what level. And so I, I don't want to, you know, kind of exclude. I'd rather, you know, include. Okay. Um, so I would, I would leave that where it is because I, you know, I have a mentee now that's in the very early stages of her career. And I also have a CEO that's in, you know, the back half, right? The back, the back nine of her round. And so those are, are meaningful things. And so um, for me, you know, the way that I find that I add value is different ways because, you know, my profile is venture capital founder, uh, human capital evangelist, um, and, you know, just this massive engaged person around female-led companies and launching them. And that's kind of my next role is I'm taking a a president role for a company called Launchpad 2X here in Atlanta that launches female-led companies. I'm very excited about that because it's it's a great parlay between the two of us and some of the things that I've been architecting for 10 years. So the best way that you can engage with me or I can engage with you is just recognizing where you are and really what your objectives are. And if those aren't clearly defined and your priorities, I'll never be able to help you because again, athlete mine is these are my clear objectives on the race. And if, if you haven't kind of thought about where you want to be, um, that's a different kind of therapy. So I am, I am definitely the um, CEO mentor and, and kind of board advisor that complements, you know, business. And it doesn't have to be staffing. It's like business in general, because I'm a generalist. 
Is that helpful? <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> if you broad. want to reach out to, yeah, yeah, thank you. So it's Christy. Uh, no, that's great. I, I'll um, I'll leave it there. I think that's that's amazing. Um, so you can reach Christy at Christy at quantum dot io. That's an unusual spelling of quantum. It's K W O N T U M dot O. Did I get that right? You got it. K W O N is a Nancy T U M is a Mary dot io. Perfect. Christy, thank you so much for sharing your extraordinary career uh, with me and, and with my listeners. Uh, I really appreciate you. This is great, Mark. Thanks for, for inviting me. I love being part of this ecosystem and look forward to what the, the future holds for all of you. Excited. Fantastic. And thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can support me and the program is to click the subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.